1: Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.
2: Hello and welcome to the tip-off. This is our 50th episode, which is kind of incredible in many ways. I started this as a total experiment thinking I'd make a handful of episodes. And years later the show is still totally independent, totally a labor of love which I fit in around my day job working as an investigative journalist. And I wouldn't still be making it if it wasn't for you lovely listeners tuning in, letting me know you're enjoying the show via tweets or reviews. And of course, an extra special thanks goes to those who are able to support the production financially through our Patreon. So, as big birthdays are often a time for reflection, this episode, we're going to dive back into the tip off vaults and find out what happened next in some of our biggest stories. First up, in episode 4, Knock Knock, we heard from journalist Jane Bradley. She had been working to hunt down and identify two members of a notorious ISIS torture cell, nicknamed the Beatles. She'd gleaned some vital information from a journalist who was then at the Washington Post, Adam Goldman.
1: I, I first
3: learned Coté's name uh, from a former hostage, in fact. A former hostage held in Syria knew the name of Coté.
0: But as tips go, it wasn't a lot of information. Two very kind of vague pieces of information. One was that this guy's name was... Alexander Coty um, and he gave a spelling which later turned out to be completely incorrect um, and the other was that he was friends or or a contact with Mohammed Amwazi um, the guy from West London who was featured in all the ISIS propaganda videos so um, he also said he was mixed race you know we were in the midst of um, all the coverage about Jihadi John uh, Mohammed Amwazi and I knew that kind of the World Intelligence Services, certainly the Western Intelligence Services, were on the hunt for these men, and nobody knew who they were. I knew journalists were all trying to find out who they were. So I kind of knew immediately how big the story would be. Jane had spent weeks searching online databases,
2: trying every variation of spelling she could. And she was piecing together clues. Like, for one of the men, nicknamed Ringo, she had found an anonymised interview online in which he had mentioned liking Queen's Park Rangers football team. She kept unravelling the clues until she had a suspected address. So she set off to test it out.
0: So I went down to this area of West London with my colleague Richard Holmes and we waited all day outside the address. And then uh, I'd initially knocked on the door no one was in. But what I'd noticed was on the doorstep was a QPR gnome Could this be it? Was Jane about to come face to face with the family of
2: one of the world's most wanted men? Or was she about to meet a Miss Coty,
0: some innocent woman with no connection to the story at all? So I went up to the door and I knocked and initially the person I now know as a stepdad answered the door and my opening gambit was, hi, could I speak to Alexander Coty? And he was kind of friendly, but a bit quizzical. Alexander Cote, Alexander Cote. And he was like, I don't think I know an Alexander Cote. And then the mum came out and the mum was having none of it. As soon as she came to the door, she said, why are you asking? Who are you? And then obviously I said, I'm a journalist from BuzzFeed News. And she said, I cannot help you and went to close the door. It was an instant kind of shutting down. A dead end. But something didn't feel right. Their attitude was really unusual. I've done a lot of doorsteps. And it's not unusual for someone to tell you to go away and close the door on your face. But what was unusual was that they seemed to know why I was there before I even had time to explain it. In the space of just a few months, Jane had identified and unmasked two of the
2: world's most wanted criminals. It was a kind of scoop most journalists would work their whole careers for. I asked Jane how she had felt before publishing both momentous
0: stories. I was incredibly nervous, and I think every half-decent investigative journalist has those nerves and those kind of, I don't know if second thoughts is the right words. but you start to question everything you know, and you're like, God, is it definitely this guy? You know, it is the photo. We confirmed it with enough people. Are the intelligence sources definitely right? Um, And you, yeah, you always have these thoughts going through your head. So it's such a huge story. And kind of obviously the thing that's at the forefront of your mind is if you are wrong, you're exposing this family to all this media spotlight and all this kind of public judgment for something that might not be true so you have to be a hundred percent sure in your journalism especially if something that kind of affects someone's life um straightforward so much uh so yeah generally ne- I mean kind of ex- excited that would come so far but <laughs> more than that nervous <laughs> to be honest I mean that story ended up on every single front page um in the UK every single national newspaper in the UK Now, since Jane published her stories and came on the tip-off to tell us about
2: them, there have been some major developments. In January 2018, the Syrian Democratic Forces intercepted both men, Alexander Cote and El shafii sheik as they were fleeing, following the collapse of Daesh, or so-called Islamic State. The men were held in Syria and remarkably undertook a series of interviews with the media. The big question that arose was what to do with them now. Where should they be tried? Here, Alexander Coty tells CNN his preference. Would you prefer to be tried anywhere in particular, like the UK? Definitely familiarity is uh, the easier option. My experience with uh, British uh, judges is that they're quite fair and just. Shockingly, they were even interviewed by Ricardo Villanova, a Spanish photojournalist who they had held captive and tortured. Here's a clip from that interview on the BBC. Ricardo
4: wants to confront them. He says they're cowards who fled the battlefield. They refuse to answer his questions and quickly
2: bring the interview to halt. The two men were transferred to a US military base in Iraq and then to the USA. Controversially, perhaps, they were stripped of their UK citizenship. The UK sent evidence to the US following assurances the two men would not face a death penalty. They will now be tried in the USA, and if found guilty, they are likely to face a life in a super-high-security prison. Jane's work had shown the world who these men were, had delved into their pasts to try and understand how they had come to make the decisions they had. She unmasked these men publicly before anyone else and ensured their terrible crimes were not forgotten. Now, in one of our more recent episodes, Sharing Data... Natalie Bloomer and Samir Jiraj explained how they had exposed the way police were working with immigration enforcement, sometimes shopping in victims of crime, who'd come to them for help. Here's what they told us.
3: So we sent off some, a couple of freedom of, freedom of information requests. Um, I think one to the, the Met and one to Greater Manchester Police as two of the larger kind of police forces.
2: But these requests are tricky they take research to get them right.
3: Yeah, I've uh, a long and uh, harrowing experience of freedom of information requests, like like most journalists say. You have to think through what the piece of information or document that you're looking for is, and you have to define it as clearly and narrowly as you possibly can, especially if you're asking about something which the Place that's holding that information might find embarrassing. They will find any reason possible to uh, to delay you or um, come back and say, "Oh, can you can you refine your question uh, more?" So um, we specifically asked about about policy. um, You know, what is your what is your policy on this? Um, And if possible, provide the the documentation.
2: They waited and waited. And then the response came back.
3: I remember thinking, gotcha, now to this, is, you know, this is significant.
2: The Met police had admitted through the FOI response that they would pass on details of both victims and witnesses of a crime if there were concerns over their immigration status. Migrant support groups reacted with shock, warning that people would be scared to report crimes if they feared they could be deported as a result. The pair of journalists published their story on politics.co.uk and they kept going. Natalie heard about a troubling case where a Brazilian woman, who was working as a sex worker, was robbed at knife point by five men. When she went to the police to report the crime, she said they focused more on trying to prosecute her for the sex work. And when she returned to the UK after a holiday abroad, she was detained. She was then facing deportation after, you know, sort of, instead of being treated as a victim, she, that sort of case was turned and she was then being treated as a, an immigration offender. Natalie and Samir had published a series of articles, but then things went quiet. The outrage they had half expected never materialised. Frustratingly, life just went on. Or so they thought. In December 2020, three police oversight bodies published a report around a super complaint that had been put in by Liberty and Southall Black Sisters. Those organisations had asked official channels to look at the police's practice of sharing victims' immigration information with the Home Office. The report that came out from those oversight bodies was stark. They said that police officers with any doubts over the immigration status of domestic abuse victims should not share their data with the Home Office that the practice was causing significant harm to the public interest and that victims of crime with insecure immigration status might not report crimes to the police if they feared having their information shared with the Home Office and that would leave them vulnerable to further abuse. It was great to see the issue that they had exposed finally addressed, even if it took some time. Next. In episode 33, Clues of a Killing, Aliam Leroy told us how he had gathered a team of open-source investigators from across the internet. Sharing their findings in Twitter DMs, they started to try to get to the truth behind a horrifying video. A short piece of filmed footage which showed men dressed in army-style clothing marching two women and several very young children down a dusty path and then shooting them all dead. There was very little to go on. Alian wanted to know who these men were, where this had taken place and when. So he and his group scoured every minute detail in the video, including the shape of the mountain range in the background.
4: We drew the mountain range and tried to see if you find it for quite a day. So we're just spending hours and hours in front of Gugurus trying to match, but proved to be useless we couldn't we couldn't find it as we kept going and as we kept reaching out to people we had more tip of coming in Uh, so actually the tip of that led us to the right location was part of a couple i think it was probably three or four uh, people saying it took place near this town near this town so we could then that's good because then you've got uh, a location you can zoom in and try to see if you find the mountain range around this location. And one of the source was actually right because when they say it's actually someone coming from Cameroon who um, I can't give more details about, about the source for, for his security, but it's someone coming from Cameroon who um, my colleague was in touch uh, with. It's, and we're all in touch with different sources. And he said, have you looked at the area near the town called Zelevet in the far north of Cameroon? And when we zoom in uh, within, I think a day or even less couple of hours, we found a mountain range that was quite similar to the one we could see in the video.
2: Who were those men? The ones who had pulled out their guns and fired so callously at those women and children? Well, again, there was a clue in the video. One of the men in Aliam's online detective group on Twitter used to work in the Australian military, and he recognised one of the guns the men used right away. It was an unusual model, a Zastava M21, an automatic rifle not unlike an AK forty
4: seven. We thought, okay, that's, that's interesting, but we need to prove that it's a gun that's like it's not present in other African countries because maybe that gun is used, I don't know, in Nigeria, and then that could be that could be harder. But we looked at it at open source evidence, and the only country that bought a lot of Zastava M21 was Cameroon. You know, that was textual evidence, but we could confirm that by looking on Facebook at different units of the Cameroonian army, especially the the sort of special forces or soldiers' fighting in the far north, they all had Zastava M21. And then we looked at other military as well to be sure that Cameroonian soldiers and the Cameroonian army was the only one in sub-Sahara using the Zastava M21.
2: So it was looking more and more like the men in the video were part of the Cameroonian army. But the government's communication minister had rejected that idea. He said the colour of the fatigues the men were wearing in the video Was completely wrong. That the Cameroonian army doesn't wear those kind of clothing, so it couldn't be them. Yet again, the investigative team proved him wrong. They'd set up a YouTube account and were watching anything and everything they could on armed groups in the north of Cameroon. And then YouTube's algorithm did the rest. A suggested video popped up at the side of the screen a news report from Channel 4 News. We're on our way towards the border with Nigeria speeding along in a Cameroonian military convoy. The villages are ever more remote, the land parched and rocky, we're driving through territory Boko Haram wants to occupy, past
3: people they want to rule. The troops are here for our protection, because in Boko Haram's eyes foreigners are valuable commodities for kidnap. We're going to a remote outpost where there was fighting this very
4: morning. And I was really, really lucky. But it's a nice technique as well in order to get more content just using YouTube to your own advantage. And then we could again apply geolocation to the video, contact even the reporter and get more information.
2: In that report, filmed at the army compound post less than a kilometre from the location of the killings, army personnel wore the same kind of camouflage and carried those Zestava M21 guns. What's more, Aliam and his colleagues had been able to make out the names of some of the men with the guns in the video. They shout to one another, goad each other on.
0: No.
2: The team managed to find two of their Facebook pages and worked with sources to confirm it was the same men as in the video. They concluded that these men were from Cameroon and that they were part of an army. They suspected that the women and children were being punished for apparently supporting Boko Haram. Aliam's story for BBC Africa Eye made a huge impact. A Twitter thread laying out the story was viewed millions of times. There was international condemnation of the murders. After initially refuting that the video had taken place in their country, the Cameroonian government finally was forced to act. Seven soldiers were arrested and put on trial, two were acquitted, four of them were sentenced to 10 years each for carrying out the killings or being incomplicit in them, and a fifth soldier was sentenced to two years for filming and sharing the footage of the incident. It was an outcome that undoubtedly would never have happened if it hadn't have been for the BBC Africa Eyes team, shining a spotlight on that horrific crime. These are just a few examples. Many of the investigations covered on the tip-off continue to have incredible impact, from R. Kelly preparing to face trial for the assault of minors to Curtis Flowers being saved from death row by the amazing investigative work of the In The Dark team. That's all for this catch-up episode. Thanks so much for staying with us through 50 whole episodes. If you want to support our little show, you can review, shout about us on Twitter, at Tip-Off Podcast, or even find us on Patreon. Any which way. Stay tuned and we'll tell you stories behind more outstanding investigative scoops.
1: Even on a budget?